0: Welcome to Calling Operator podcast, where we speak to operators in some of Australia's biggest startups, find out how they got there and what their impact is. Operator connecting to Estelle Burton, operations manager at Eucalyptus. Hi Estelle, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, Paloma. Thanks for having me here. I'm excited to have you here. I've been talking to some people who have said some super lovely things about you, and I think you have a really interesting journey. So we're going to get into that in a second. But the first thing I wanted to ask you is, where did you grow up? And I think there's an interesting story in your name origin. So where did you grow up and why is your name stuck?
1: Very good question. I was, I was born and raised in Sydney. I've done a fair bit of traveling and lived overseas different sections in my life, but have always come back to Sydney. And I'm actually named after the houseboat that my parents conceived me on, the Estelle. And I found out about that at my 21st birthday party. My dad chose to make the whole speech about how I was conceived. So that made for a fun night.
0: Thanks, Dad.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. A lot of people ask me if I'm French because it's a French name, but no.
0: Oh, that's the same as a Paloma. People just randomly start talking to me in Spanish and I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) nothing, I'm sorry.
1: If only I could reply.
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I should learn it just for them. So I'm going to jump into kind of how you got to where you've gotten to. Do you want to quickly just tell everyone what your current role is? Yes. So
1: I work in the ops team at Uke. And funnily enough, the scope of my role has actually just expanded as of last week. So I look after all of the last mile delivery and logistics for our operations business. So that covers sea freight and custom clearances. And then managing our carriers that we use for our deliveries of our products. And a lot of that is very, very new terrain to me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So going into that a little bit, what's your journey to Eucalyptus sort of been so far? Did you go to university? What was your first kind of role out of university? What's that pathway look like? Mm, I did.
1: I took a gap year when I finished school, definitely one of the best years of my life and traveled around and worked lots of different jobs and then definitely lent into the hospital life while I was at university. I studied psychology and business at Macquarie, basically because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I bought myself, literally bought myself, paid for a double degree, lots of optionality. And up until my final year, always thought that I was gonna go on to do my PhD and then masters in science because I'm pretty passionate about psychology, but randomly one day decided to apply for a full-time 12-month internship at Apple and went through the multiple interview stages thinking, oh, I'm just doing this for experience and it's never going to happen. And then actually got offered a full-time job at Apple with three other interns slash grads. So I worked for Apple while finishing my degree and that kind of, I guess, kickstarted my career, not as a psychologist, but working in the corporate space. And I, I loved my time at Apple. I learned a lot. At the end of the 12 months, Apple was on a hiring freeze. So it was the harsh reality of, yeah, we love you if we could offer you a job we would, but we can't, which I look back on it, it's actually probably the stars aligning because The Apple office in Australia is very much a satellite office, so it's really just focused on sales and marketing, which wasn't what I wanted to do at the time. So I then took a job working at Qantas in a people experience team. So I got 12 months experience doing a lot of service design and applying human-centered design to different people projects, which was, again, really interesting. And again, external factors, COVID meant that I got stood down from Qantas and so I had to move on to another job and I actually got a job at CBA in a change management team implementing I guess sort of big tech changes across the organization and I was at CBA for nearly two years and I guess it was during COVID that I started obviously everyone has a lot more time to reflect and think about what they want and I started chatting to a lot of my friends that were working at startups realizing that the responsibility and daily challenges that they were dealing with was something that I really wanted to experience, especially while I'm still in my 20s. And yeah, it it was kind of like, oh, I've done big corporates. I can always go back to big corporate. I need to roll the dice and and learn and go try myself at a startup. And you could just, I think, was it was always kind of up there on my list of places I'd want to work. I actually used Kin myself, and I found out through the Kin platform. If anyone doesn't know what Kin is, basically, a online contraceptive pill subscription service. And so I signed up to Kin, thinking I was just going to get my pill delivered to me online. And I actually found out through my doctor consultation that I shouldn't be on the pill because I get really bad migraines. And it was the first time in seven years that any doctor had really put two and two together for me because I guess I'd never really thought to tell doctors that I have really bad migraines. So it was a pretty profound moment. I stopped taking the pill and I realized that Kin was a really cool company, did some research, realized that it's part of eucalyptus. And basically said, that's where I want to work. And the day that I decided that I wanted to work at Eucalyptus, I actually went to dinner with a friend at a restaurant in Surrey Hills. And I was sitting at the bar, chatting to my friend, telling them that I like, decided I really want to work at Eucalyptus. I'm going to do anything that I can to make it happen. And he went into me and he was like, are you? saying all of this because there's a guy sitting directly behind you in a Eucalyptus t-shirt and I was like what and I I looked back and literally sitting a meter from me with his back to me was Charlie one of the founders of Eucalyptus and he was wearing the big Eucalyptus t-shirt and of course I knew who he was because I'd stalked all the founders (laughs) and I instantly just went like bright red turned to my friend and I was like holy like I really hope he hasn't heard me I didn't even realize he was sitting there this is so embarrassing and my friend to his credit was like you've got to say something like you've got to introduce yourself and I was like no like no way I'm not doing that and we kind of left it at that about an hour into the dinner I got up and went to the toilet and as I sat on the toilet I was like oh god like I'm going to come back out and Lloyd, my friend, will be chatting to Charlie. So I like kind of took my time in the toilet, came out, and they weren't chatting. So I was like, oh, you've dodged that bullet. But as soon as I sat down, Charlie tapped me on the shoulder and he was like, hey, I'm Charlie. Nice to meet you. And I was like, I know. <laughs> ultimate fangirling moment. I was like, I know who you are. <laughs> um but yeah, had a really good chat to Tali and he was basically like, definitely apply for the role because I'd been looking at an operational role, which, and I hadn't actually worked in ops for a couple of years. So I was really umming and ahhing about it. And he was like, definitely apply. Like, you know, you seem like you'd be a great fit. And that was the biggest stars aligning universe is telling me to go work at Eucalyptus moment. And yeah, that basically was the beginning of my journey at Eucalyptus
0: the rest is history, as they say. <laughs>
1: oh, I just passed my one year anniversary.
0: Amazing. Well, congratulations mm-hmm. on that. I Thank wanted you. to dig into a couple of things in there. So firstly, it sounds kind of like you progressively got more corporate in your early kind of career. I know Apple is a big corporate, but I think people see it as a tech company. Oh, um, yeah.
1: Yeah, when I was young, well, not young, <laughs> <laughs> when I left uni, I really kind of idolized the big corporate, like I guess, work and like what having big corporates on your resume could mean, and then I guess the opportunities that could come from working at a big corporate. And so, kind of really chase the big corporates when I was looking for jobs, and I I don't regret that. Like I learned a lot about being at those three big companies and honestly like when you think about the scale of the size Apple probably got over 100,000 people but Qantas was like 30,000 CBA was 50,000 and then you compare that to when you're trying to roll out changes and experiments at a startup the scale is just so different and so I think it's only going to be beneficial for like wherever I land in in life having had that big corporate experience but I am in no rush to go back to a big corporate. I'm very much loving this startup life. And I think, you know, yeah, like I I have no desire to return to a big corporate for at least five years.
0: Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, what do you think has been the most useful thing about transitioning? Because a lot of people that listen to this are probably thinking about transitioning from corporate into startups. And I know that you know kind of the golden handcuffs like there's usually a period of time that people feel like they could do that so what mm-hmm. do you think was the most beneficial thing about going from corporate to startup and also what do you think was the most difficult thing because let's not sugarcoat it
1: oh yeah, hard. yeah it, was hard. <laughs> it was really hard I think I was so excited to start, start at Eucalypt disk and The first month was kind of just like absorbing so much, learning so much. And then I like hit a very steep learning curve of like, this is so, so different to big corporates where a lot of, I was, I was also an individual contributor at all the big corporates. So like a lot of the time decisions were made for me and I was just like executing on the work and at a startup, even as an individual contributor, you are really making the decisions and you have to like back yourself to make those decisions. And. I think the key difference is particularly in the areas that I was working in at big corporates, which is often project work, where your projects go 12 months, 24 months, and you spend so much time researching the problem, doing discovery, doing ideation, every sort of Decision is like a big sort of gateway and there's just so much preparation and thinking that goes into the work that is just so different in a startup because you're moving at such a quick pace, you're experimenting so much more rapidly and you have to make decisions based on like, you know, way less information and certainty than you would at a big corporate because, well, one, the scale of implementation is just so much smaller. But Mm. to the whole point is to experiment and learn and iterate. And so I think for me, the biggest learning curve was just being able to back myself without having 100% certainty and getting really comfortable with having this feeling in my gut that I didn't know what I was doing, (laughs) analyzing that feeling, and then knowing that the only way to move forward is to very quickly work out, well, if I don't have 100% conviction or even 80% or 70%, what am I going to do to get there? And what level of conviction or certainty do I need to make a decision? Because at big corporates, the last one I'm thinking about is CBAs. You need 100% conviction to do any sort of change because you're impacting so many more people. And that's just very different at a startup.
0: I feel like as well, probably that plays into that is in a big corporate environment, you also need 100% conviction of like a way of people above you. Oh, yeah. That happens.
1: Yeah. There's a lot more managing up, a lot more time spent on decks and decision docs and presentations to get the sign that you need. Yeah, <laughs> and learning how to navigate all of that is in mm. itself a skill and managing up at a big corporate takes a lot of expertise. So mm. being able to do that is is an art.
0: Well, it's actually interesting because I spoke to your manager and I think one of the things that he was – that he talked about a lot was you have this innate ability to bring teams together and almost this humility that if you don't know the answer, you'll find the person that does sort of in or outside the organization. And so I guess I'm wondering, was that something that you think that you've learned through big corporate or was that something that you feel like you've lent on in order to get that 100% conviction that you were just talking about?
1: Probably a good question. I I actually think it's more to do with my personality style and I guess I consider myself to be pretty empathetic and I know I'm very aware that my strengths are being able to I guess work with people and I I know that I'm not I'm not going to have the most technical knowledge or domain expertise at all times, but what I do think I can do well is chat to people and kind of solve problems through relationships and through working with others and so i kind of optimize for that when i'm solving problems
0: so can you describe your role at the moment what are the things that you're kind of currently focused on what are the big challenges that you're looking at and then how have you used that ability that you were just talking about to kind of bring people together and communicate and empathize to get through some of those challenges i guess the biggest challenge
1: that eucalyptus is facing is just kind of scaling our operations while continuing to provide an amazing patient experience. And specifically I've been looking at, I think what Eucalyptus hasn't done that well in the past is the last mile delivery service. So actually like getting the products that were, and most of the time it's medication because Eucalyptus is an online telehealth platform for anyone that doesn't know. Getting the medication to patients, is something that we haven't always been the best at, and so really trying to improve that service for our patients and scale it has been one of my key challenges, and the reason it's quite logistically hard is because the medication a lot of the medication we're sending patients has to be kept cold chain or mm. cold chain, and driving yeah. any any sort of anything across Australia in cold train trucks is always going to be logistically hard because of because of the nature of Australia. It's very geographically diverse. It's a massive country and a lot of the country's desert. So yeah, that's sort of been my focus. And I'm really interested in product management and learning the skills and frameworks that product managers use. So I have kind of been trying to apply product management frameworks and tools to operational problems. Purely because I find it really interesting. And it's actually been really useful because, like a lot of the problems that we are solving in ops will need product partnership and product and engineering buy in and alignment. And I found that in trying to upskill myself in product management, it's made working with the other teams so much more seamless. And it also means that I get a lot of value when I'm partnering this product because I'm, oh, I'm learning so much about this discipline that I find really interesting. And I'm trying to solve operational problems through a product manager lens. Uh, personally, a challenge for me in ops was I came from a change management role at CBA and wasn't really focused on costs and P&L and hadn't really been modeling in a spreadsheet for two years. So it was a shock when I think one of my first problems was basically go and work out the financial model that's going to help us make this big decision. And I was like, oh, God. I haven't done this in a long time. So very quickly wrapping my head around how you could just thinks about costs, how the industry thinks about costs, what's the best way to model things out and just building up, out that skill set was a big personal challenge. But obviously that's a really important part of operations. And I have also really enjoyed getting up to speed and learning those kind of financial skills and basic accounting skills really quickly as well.
0: So how do you go about that? Coming into a role for anyone that's going into, I think every time you go into a new role, it doesn't matter if, I mean, I know that I've taken roles where I've studied things in university, but then you get into it and you're like, they didn't teach you how to do the actual day-to-day of it. So how do you go about upskilling yourself? I like to find
1: people in the business that I people say are really good at that skill. I've witnessed them be really good at that skill and just ask them to sit down with me and like teach me. How they would solve a problem, or how they would approach approach this i guess equation or model or whatever it is that I'm trying to solve for, so very much learning through peers mm. and then. I'm a sucker for a good online course. I I did a couple of financial modeling courses through Udemy or Udemy. I probably didn't pronounce that right. I'm doing like a product management course through Reforge. And don't get me wrong, it's hard to find the time and motivation to keep going with those courses. I find I get really into them at the start and then I'm, oh, I need to keep myself. I need to make sure I finish that course. But if I just schedule time in my calendar every week, I find that I usually Don't cancel that scheduled time and we'll stick to it. So, yeah, it's probably like peer learning and then just finding an online course and making sure I complete it.
0: So, you're basically a lot of self-starting, a lot of learning from others, and a lot of sort of research.
1: Yeah. And a lot of just leaning into that feeling of being very unsure. I think obviously the biggest growth and learning and development happens when you're outside of your comfort zone. And I think. That's the one thing i found at being in a startup is I'm continuously feeling like I'm outside of my comfort zone. And for the first six months, it was very unsettling. And now it's like, no, this is probably where I should be. This is where I'm going to learn the most. Yeah. So just really leaning into those feelings of uncertainty and them and being this is good. This is where I'm going to learn.
0: When you were in corporate roles, did you ever feel uncertain or is is this shock to the system that it's...
1: I definitely did. But I felt like it was never at the same scale. And you always have so many structures and processes around you that you can very quickly work out how to make that unsettling and uncertain feeling go away. But nowhere near as many or usually no structures and processes in place depending on the size of your startup or scale up. So you really kind of have to, to your point, go and work that out yourself.
0: Has that been difficult for you? Because I can imagine going from like a CV. I know that even transitioning from advertising into a startup, there were parts of it that I was just in shock by. Like no one knows where things are saved on servers. just really, you know. Did that kind of throw you through a loop? I mean, I feel like Eucalyptus is also very well set up, but did that kind of not having those really verbatim processes across so many different aspects and being told to figure out the best way to do it, was that kind of shocking?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of unlearning everything you've learned. And, yeah, just I think the way I, again, to that peer learning, I kind of looked at people who were very good at, like, saying yes to a problem they knew nothing about. There's a lot of people at Eucalyptus like this will say, yeah, I can tackle that problem, but they have no domain knowledge or very little experience in the field, but they're very good at working out, well, what are the steps they need to take to find out enough information that they can then solve that problem or answer that question. And I think that's one of eucalyptus's people strengths is they've got a lot of people that are really good at that. But that was hard. You have to, You have to, yeah, just realizing that it's okay to not know, but what you do need to know is how you're going to work out what you need to know and then do it and how to track if you do quote-unquote
0: fail at something how to track what went wrong yeah, so that yeah. you don't make the same yeah. mistakes again how to
1: learn from the failures and yeah I think I would be in I'd be reading notion docs or be in meetings and people were like oh yeah like I've got xyz conviction I'm gonna do this and this and this to so that I can then say with certainty we should do this or we shouldn't it's not that you have to know the answer straight away but you have Mm. to just like back yourself to be able to work out what the answer is
0: yeah and have an understanding of how you're going to get to that point
1: yeah definitely no
0: that's super interesting I think that's probably the best way to act I wonder if that could ever translate into a big corporate but I don't know if it could
1: yeah I haven't done enough reflecting on because obviously I thought a lot about the learnings I take from big corporates and how I can bring them into a startup world, but I'm yet to think back. of well, what lessons can I take from a startup back to a big corporate? And that's probably because I don't want to go back to a big corporate. For a while. <laughs>
0: that's true. I feel like on that topic of reflection too. Now that you've been at UKE, you know, for a year, how would you describe if someone said, "How do you operate? How does Estelle operate?" It's a
1: good question. I guess I always kind of just start with the end goal problem that we're solving for and it's usually like centred around the patient experience or customer experience and kind of work back from there understand so we've got the patient experience we know what problem we're solving for and then I to chat to a lot of people and really sort of form a view of this is the problem across lots of people's minds these are probably going to be the inputs that I need validate those inputs with a lot of people validate that I've actually defined the problem right and then sort of have like a high level plan and then go and execute on that plan so basically I like to chat to a lot of people get a lot of insights from other people and then go and execute whereas I know that other people at Eucalyptus will really flesh out their own ideas first do their own research progress their thinking and then present it to people, mm. I very much like to flip and, like, start with talking to a lot of people, progress the work, go back to talking to a lot of people, and then progress the work more.
0: What do you think is one of the biggest skills that you need to have, even just from, like, an internal perspective, right, of bringing people along board. How do, you, how do you kind of manage that? How do you get people to want to talk to you all the time? Or, to... I guess,
1: well, I, I genuinely really like talking to people. <laughs> So, and I'm very much, I really enjoy hearing other people's perspectives and I'm very curious as to what other people think. So for me, it's kind of like a, a natural thing of I, I want to know what other people think and I want to form my own opinions, I guess, based on having spoken to a lot of people about the particular subject matter i think you obviously have to be really good at listening and i guess good at getting people to say what you want them to say and that's like tiny little things you know leaning into silence pausing mirroring people's body language that kind of stuff but really it's just about having good relationships with people and eucalyptus is pretty unique to all the other workplaces that i've worked out in that like everyone here is like a certified legend. I'm friends with people outside of work and I think that makes it easy to then go and chat to someone in a work setting and find out the information that you want to find out. But yeah, I think it was just having genuine curiosity for what other people think.
0: I like that you said term certified legend with such seriousness. what you're going to say next like, by medical practitioner.
1: Very cliche. But <laughs> no it's
0: great. But it's true. <laughs> So, if I would ask you to think back sort of five or 10 years to give your younger self advice, and it could be on anything, but what would you, what kind of lessons from your journey have you learned that you would give someone at an earlier stage that, that was a little you?
1: Mm, yeah. I think the biggest one is that mm. you can, or I've found that I can really do any role that I, I'm, that I want to do if I'm willing to invest the time and effort into upskilling I went from a grad at Apple where I rotated through various different teams to designer in a people experience team in HR at Qantas into a change management role in a tech team at CBA into an operations role at a healthcare company and every transition between all the roles I had so much self-doubt and it's mm-hmm. kind of like just back yourself. You can learn on the job. It'll be hard. There'll be tears sometimes. But if you're willing to put the time and effort and investment into upskilling, you can you can really solve any any problem. I mean, obviously, I always think I should have learned how to code. I think <laughs> teaching <laughs> yourself how to code on the job would be a whole nother ball game. But if I do decide I want to do that one day, I I'm definitely going to try it. I think you've just got to. got to back yourself to do whatever it is that you want to do
0: fun fact I tried to learn how to code in the pandemic and I haven't finished that course because it is I say that now that I
1: I have the utmost respect for anyone that can code and I probably really do wish I learned how to code at uni
0: I think that there is a big opportunity I'm not going to do it but anyone out there listening that wants to do it like a girls who code club where you can all learn together because doing Mm. that solo was not my vibe
1: Yeah, like in a similar vein, yeah, I think I I place a lot of value on technical skills, whether that's modelling or uh, yeah, any sort of technical skill. And I kind of get a bit oh, I don't have that technical skill, so I'm probably not the best person for the role. But just not having that frame, that mindset, and reframing as oh, I don't have these technical skills. What am I going to do to get there? Is the way to approach any sort of role or opportunity that you don't feel like you're qualified for and it's so cliche but they always say oh don't ignore the five years experience and the job descriptions when you're going for a job and yeah you can go for a job with no experience as long as you show that you've got the right attitude and you're willing to learn Mm -hmm.
0: and what do you think getting over that self-doubt how have you looked at doing that
1: well yeah it's a (laughs) iterative improvement continuously working through that but I think yeah you just kind of try things when you fail you learn from them when they don't fail you get positive reinforcement and then you just keep realizing that that yeah the only way to move through the self-doubt is by just like trying it and experimenting it like i'm saying all of this i feel like my journey at eucalyptus was i'm so excited to be here i have and then it went a massive dip this is so hard I've got imposter syndrome. I don't know if I'm meant to be here. And that was like the first six months and I've now come through that. And I am meant to be here. I can learn on on the job that first six months were really hard. But like, if you just keep trying, you can get there.
0: I think I've recognized that in a lot of people that I've spoken to who have gone particularly from traditional backgrounds into a startup. There is that first six months where at first you're super excited and then suddenly you're like, holy shit, how am I going to sell lighter? I don't know how it works. And there's something beautiful in pushing through it. I don't know if you've experienced this, but coming from a background in advertising, I used to be very apologetic if I ever sort of quote-unquote failed or made mistakes Mm -hmm. because I was one of those people that didn't make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting how unlearning that, part of what I did in a startup was tell people when I'd made a mistake, not try and hide it whatsoever. Be like, oh, I've made X, Y, Z mistake. This is probably why I made it that's interesting because it shows xyz and this is how I'm going to solve the future
1: 100 have to be you have to own the mistakes and often the mistakes lead to the most interesting insights and it's like hey we tried this didn't work but this is what we learned Mm. that's the way to frame any mistake and funny you say that about being apologetic because I am trying to remove sorry from my vocabulary I think it's just like a I don't know I, I used to always just chuck it in text messages to friends slack messages to colleagues I don't need to be saying sorry <laughs> <laughs> get that word out of my vocabulary obviously there's a time and a place for sorry but yeah coming from big corporates and also I think the way I was raised I used to just chuck sorries in like all the time and I don't need to be saying sorry as much as I was
0: there was a really interesting study done and look I don't want to flag my feminist flag too hard all the time, but it's definitely always waving slightly. But it was a study done about sort of women in the workplace and Mm -hmm. men in the workplace and differences in the way that they communicate. And I mean, Mm -hmm. we all know the exclamation points and the overt kind of politeness, Mm -hmm. but they found that women said sorry like a a ridiculous amount more than men did. Mm
1: -hmm. And it's
0: kind of in our nature. And the other day I, I walked into a coat rack in a shop with clothes on it and apologize to it. And I <laughs> say you need and to the rack said, don't worry. You need to stop. So yeah, and- it's interesting too, because that apologizing maybe is sometimes also like a manifestation of, of us feeling kind of I don't know how to explain it, but like we're not doing what we're meant to be doing or in the right place. And I think mm, maybe it comes yeah. out more when you in a new environment.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think on that on that note, as well, like I, one of my favorite podcasts, which I listen to, is called Radical Candor, and it's all about basically getting what you want through what you say. And the whole premise is that like uh, a lot of people are afraid to be really candid and direct, but direct and candid communication is actually like the most effective communication. And I was very much raised with like apologize whenever you make mistakes, and if you don't have something nice to say. Don't say it at all. Much to my mom and dad's credit, that's how they raised me. But I remember particularly coming to Euclid just being so shocked at how direct the communication style was and finding it really challenging. And at first I found it a bit rude and abrupt. And I was like, whoa, this is so different to what I'm used to. No one says sorry. And it was, yeah, that was one of the biggest learnings that I went on. And this podcast, Radical Candide, Basically, their whole hypothesis is that if you care deeply and personally about someone, you then basically earn the right to be as direct and upfront in your communication with them as possible. And that as long as you have that really solid foundation of mutual respect, they know that any direct feedback is like just for their benefit. And it's based on a book, actually, but I find the podcast, I guess, a lot more accessible to listen to. And that podcast has just taught me so much about how to be candid, direct, and give really useful feedback. And I think it's something that I'm trying to apply a lot more in my life outside of work with friends and with my family. Open and honest, direct communication is very effective.
0: Um, yeah, I totally. And I had a very similar experience at Braha. I remember leaving the first meeting and asking one of my coworkers, why are you all so angry at each other? What's your tension you about? And he was like, "What do you mean?" And I was like, "Why are you all yelling? Why are you mad?" And he oh. was like, "We're not. We're solving the problem. That was a great meeting." And I was in shock. Same
1: experience. Eucliptus. One of my first meetings with the founders. I I thought it went horribly because yeah, it was a debated. It, we we were like debating Need an important point and. I was like so worried afterwards and they're like no that was a good meeting that conversation needed to be had it was a very big like whoa this is different
0: yeah and it's true too once you start to make I mean everything you 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 learn by doing right so if you start to be really open about communication I think it also I listen to people talk about this stuff all the time and I remind myself you it has to be two ways so if you're going to kind of give direct feedback in the moment I think you also have to ask people for direct feedback in the moment right and like Mm. at the end of meetings say hey did that go well do you feel resolved have I answered your question have I not answered your question and kind Mm. of be open and ready to be told that they're not happy yeah definitely so moving on to just like a couple of your personality traits as we get older and we grow up we sort of learn things about ourselves What are traits that you've realized are sort of fundamental to your being able to jump into different roles and communicate with people? And like, what are are some of the things that you really lean into now?
1: Yeah, I'm very aware that I make decisions based on my default is to be like um, emotional and like empathetic and really think about the person and the end user experience. So I often have to make myself think, okay, well, my immediate reaction was to think about the person and how they're feeling and how I'm feeling. Let's now take a step back and look at the data and try and apply some logical reasoning to what I've just felt, I guess, very empathetically. So I'd say, yeah, I, I kind of, I lean into that, but also try and manage it because I know that you can't always make decisions based on how you feel. And I think uh, I'd say I'm pretty extroverted, which again, I just use that to my ability. Like I I really do enjoy just being around people. So I like coming into the office. Eucalyptus has a three days a week you have to be in the office, but I usually come four or five. And I just, I know that that suits my style better because I like being around people, but obviously that's very different for others. Uh, and I'm very aware that, yeah, I I like to think about, like, the big picture first. And, again, recognizing that I'm much more of a, like, big picture person, I then have to like, tell myself, okay, well, we need to go into the details and mm-hmm. the the granularity of things. So, I think if you do, like, one of those personality traits, it's like, a, ha- has anyone used the app Dimensions? Do you know no. that who I'm talking about? What is
0: it? No. Is it a personality trait app?
1: Yeah. yeah. And everyone at you, well, not everyone, but there's a lot of friends at you that love this app. And we all kind of look at each other's personality styles. And it's actually been really useful because you can then sort of tailor your communication and feedback and to that person's personality style. But I think mine is the Myers Briggs, it's worded sensing, perceiving, and feeling. I think I might, I might have made that. <laughs> but it's all of the ones that aren't data logic. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm very aware of that and I really try and bring myself back to when I need to. Or well, let's think about reason, logic, data, numbers when it's necessary.
0: But I think that's the greatest part about understanding and being aware of your gaps, right? Is that and luckily for you, finding data is easier than finding emotion. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hey, that's true.
0: That's a good way of looking at it. That's <laughs> so true. I think you should lean into that as a positive. Mm. And so just a couple more questions about your role, and then we're going to move into sort of big picture stuff, which I know you're going to enjoy. But what's something that you've initiated? It doesn't have to be at Eucalyptus. It can be at any kind of point in your career that you really learned like a valuable and big lesson from.
1: That's a good one. This is, I guess, sort of different answer, but I, so I've always been really interested in or really into running. And two years ago, I started cycling and I joined a cycling club and made heaps of like friends on this through the cycling club and like joined the cycling club board and kind of like took on a bit of responsibility with like running that cycling club. And at the same time, started getting really into triathlons and just like doing a bunch of triathlons. And then last year, working at, starting at Eucalyptus, doing this startup, being part of the cycling club on the board and then training for a half Ironman was just like, and the cycling club that I joined was initially all all men and then I came along and we kind of really grew the female contingency. So that was one of the key things that I was doing is helping get more females to come along. And I think initiating the sort of love for, or not love, but dedicated training for triathlons being a part of this cycling club, working at Eucalyptus, which was just like a completely different role and learning and trying to teach myself all this stuff outside of work, was probably the busiest year I've had in a very long time, but also probably one of the best years I've had and the most productive years. And through the cycling club and through triathlons, I've made so many different connections and networks, which all sort of in a weird way, fed back into my eucalyptus connections. And I guess the biggest learning for me was that the more I'm putting into life and putting into communities, whether that be at work or outside of work, the bigger returns I get. And while at some point I was like, oh my God, I've bitten off way too much that I can chew, it it actually never became too much and if anything, it was just the better. And I found that I was so much more productive because I had a lot going on. And I guess taking the initiative to sort of grow, help grow a cycling club taught me a lot about acquisition and conversion. And like, these are all things that I could then apply at work. Even though I'm in operations, it's really important to understand those concepts. And similarly, I was learning those concepts at Eucalyptus and I could apply that to the cycling club. And I think before I spoke about the best part or the best place to be to learn is outside of your comfort zone. And I kind of really saw that when I was training for my triathlon because the best way to train and get better at running and cycling is to basically do sessions where you're like very much pushing your physical limit. It's called sweet spot training. And I found that just by doing one or two running sessions a week where I was really in that out of my comfort zone for cycling and running meant that my running and cycling got so much better and I kind of realized that like the same thing at work when you're outside of your comfort zone it's just when your like development is exponential and so, sort of seeing that synergy across like my training and then my work was like oh wow this this thing that everyone says about like you learn the most when you're outside of your comfort zone is actually really true.
0: No, I think that's a really good point. And I think also something that you kind of tapped onto there too is like you become better at your job when you're interested in the world. Do you know what I mean? It's not always, there's only so much you can ingest. I I have a theory that each topic I can take so much in and the rest is bloody, right? Like Mm -hmm. I can only take so much in. But if I can take in more topics and be more interested in things, then I can relate to more people. If I can relate to more people, then I'm going to get better at my job because inherently I have to talk to people regardless.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. I, I also forgot last year I helped my friend. She's got her own social enterprise called Pledge Planet. And I helped her scale that. And we ran an event in October called the 48-hour mission. Mm. And I think, again, I could apply so much of what I was learning at Eucalyptus mm. to help scale that event. And the whole premise behind that event is basically there was like a 48-hour mission where you could run, cycle, swim as much as possible over 48 hours to collect points. And people, instead of sponsoring you by donating to a charity, they sponsor you by making a environmental pledge, whether that be don't use takeaway cups, only use keep cups for a year, et cetera. So your behavior is your currency. And doing that with this friend of mine, Alice, and learning, again, so much of how to scale a business when, you know, just experimenting, it was just so much synergies of doing that with her and then learning at work and then growing the cycling club. There was just all these synergies in life and you just learn so much more, I guess, through experimenting in very different ways.
0: And that's the interesting thing about like a startup versus a corporate, right? The first year or two in a corporate, you're learning how to learn the system. Whereas in a startup, your your whole thing is to try and figure out how to do the thing. So mm-hmm. if you're constantly doing the thing, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're Experiences from hospitality, I'm sure you've also found that in solving lots of these problems, you've probably pulled experiences from the most random of places. And yes. And been like, oh, wait, I did this in this random job and it has nothing to do with this. But yeah. I guess that's interesting. Yeah.
1: I'm very much the more experiences that you can have in like different fields and, and different okay. contexts, the better.
0: No, I totally agree. Can you tell me one person in the Australian, doesn't even have to be startup, it's just in the Australian ecosystem of operators that you think is a phenomenal
1: Okay, so I actually thought about this question and I didn't realize you were going to limit it to Australia.
0: <laughs> no, that's okay, it doesn't have to be Australia, just the ecosystem.
1: Because they, I've never met this guy, but I follow him on LinkedIn. He's called John Cutler. And I've never, he posts on LinkedIn like twice a day. He's a, he was at Amplitude and he's recently just moved to a different company. So again, not really startup, but tech space, mm. but he posts the most interesting and engaging questions on LinkedIn that spark the most stimulating in conversations that I've ever read. And I've never seen LinkedIn used in that way, but he taps into people from all over the world all different industries and you just get these really candid insights from all these different people about different topics and they usually are all to do with startups and usually it's very product manager focused but i've seen operational questions i've seen end questions and i and then he also has a blog called the beautiful mess which often his questions will sort of feed back into But I've never seen someone initiate such interesting conversation on LinkedIn. And the way he's he's basically, I feel like everyone that follows John Cutler is just like just applying product manager principles to all of his problems in that he's like tapping into this global network on LinkedIn to get insights from so many different people to solve the problems that he's He's trying to solve. And I I think if anyone is interested in learning about how other companies approach problems or even just other operators, they should be following this John Cutler guy on LinkedIn. I think I I look at his LinkedIn twice a day
0: and I'm like, oh, wow, that's
1: really interesting. I'm going to try that.
0: (laughs) It's like he's using curiosity as a tool to solve problems. He
1: He is. And that I think I resonate because. Yeah, I learn a lot by chatting to lots of different people and he's doing mm. that on LinkedIn and I, it's really cool.
0: He's almost doing that at like a super scalable level.
1: Mm. He's, he's scaled mm.
0: what you do in the office. I think I'm a while off posting a question <laughs> on <my> LinkedIn <laughs> and getting hundreds of people commenting. <laughs> like, maybe that's well. the goal one day? <laughs> maybe that's the end game. So then, and then going a bit bigger, you talk about how you've done a lot of self-learning. So what are some of your go-to resources if someone said to you hey how have you learned how to solve all these problems how have you gone from a human centered design to culture chain what are the three resources that you lean into a lot to keep you thinking and answering questions whether it's a book or a podcast do you keep going back to
1: our junker would definitely be one like i think the resources change with context so and like a lot of it is kind of like at Eucalyptus right now, I'm using Reforge because like that's available to me. It's vetted. It's it, it's a great, with a lot of really good courses. But when I was at Qantas, I was using IDEO, which is like a big human-centered design one. It's very context-driven and also peer-driven. I really like yeah. to ask peers like, well, what do you use? One podcast though that I will always keep going back to is actually, and it's like not strictly work related, but, um, the imperfects, which is much more about mental health. But I find that so much of the conversations that they're having about how to deal with life's challenges, emotionally and mentally can be really relevant to work because obviously so much of your mental health is related to your work and, well, at least for me anyway, and how I'm going emotionally. And so I'd say that's the one sort of consistent tool that I've used and learned a lot from. And it's an awesome podcast.
0: And your friend told me that you are just one of those people that seemingly kind of gets up, goes for a run, goes for a swim, goes to breakfast, still manages to do a great job at work. And I think, you know, a testament to that is that you forgot that you had helped your friend with it social enterprise this year or last year. Do you think that mental health, is that something that you're acutely aware that you have to pay attention to in order to be a high performer?
1: Yeah, definitely. But again, it's very subjective and personal. I know for me I have to be and, and funnily enough, my stress and anxiety actually manifest way more physically than it does me- or at least the lead it's that's a leading indicator. I start feeling sick <laughs> before I like really get my mind ticking which is interesting because a lot of people have a different reaction, but I know I'm stressed when like I get migraines or I stop sleeping well, or I like just get really bad tummy aches. And I think in a way having that sort of physical trigger and leading indicator is somewhat useful because I'm like, oh, I'm stressed. Something's going on. I need to take the time to pause and reflect and work out what it is and address these physical triggers. And it's probably a bit circular in that the reason I guess I pay attention to my mental health is because I have such physical reactions Mm. to it but yeah I feel like I can handle stress well in my mind I'm good at telling myself things but then my tummy will be telling me something very different
0: (laughs) but it's interesting too right because like to be a high performer not just for a week not just for a month but sort of as a lifestyle choice You have to pay attention to those things and you have to learn when to put the brakes on Mm -hmm. and take some time.
1: And that takes courage, but it's hard to do. Mm.
0: So then I've got two more questions. The second last one is, what do you see being a big trend in the next 5-10 years?
1: I think as we, uh, I'm slightly biased here because of what Eucalyptus does with healthcare, but I feel as you know, words like personalization and customization become, you know, even bigger and more important to having a competitive advantage, which is I feel going to continue to see a lot more aggregation of services across different industries, so that traditional services start to become easier for people. So whether it's aggregation of healthcare services on the platform, like similar to what you put just does, or you know, a trend is being able to rent dresses through all those online websites, and then I feel like the next big thing will be, all someone's going to aggregate all of those websites, so you only have to go to one place. And we've seen it with ClassPass, aggregating gym memberships. I, I just feel like that aggregation is probably we're going to see more of that. And honestly, it's great for the consumer.
0: <laughs> it makes life a lot
1: easier. And there's so many use cases and value that can come from from things being aggregated.
0: The last question is going to be a way easier one. We talk, we've talked a lot about self-learning and upskilling and how you can learn everything and anything that you want put your mind to it I just wanted to know a little bit about how you've recently been teaching yourself to DJ and <laughs> why and where people can see you DJ uh, so similar to what I've spoken about a bit
1: peer-to-peer learning so I have a couple friends who are very good DJs and they've very generously offered me some DJing lessons so yeah, leveraging my my friendship and my network there. I'm also a big fan of just like throwing yourself in the deep end. So I've said yes to a couple gigs, having absolutely no idea how to DJ. Hey, I've got a deadline and I have to do it. So and I think I've I've been fortunate enough that those two gigs that I said yes to, I had a friend who did know how to DJ with me the whole time they were supporting me. Shout out to DJ James there. Do you have a DJ uh, name? Do I have a DJ name? Oh, it's, it's actually quite embarrassing, but it's DJ L. No, <laughs> I get, a, couple, a lot of my friends call me Elf. Anyway, that's another story, not for this podcast. But yeah, for me, I, I really like DJing because I actually really like like dancing to music. And when you can dance to the beat, I figure you can like listen to the beat and like DJ. And then When I see other people dancing to the music that the DJ is playing, I find that really invigorating. So I think the way I'm going to keep learning is I have to just keep saying yes to parties, putting myself in the deep deep end and just keep continuing to give myself that positive reinforcement of how fun this is and just like learning on the fly.
0: And I think that's a pretty good wrap up, but also kind of a nice little anecdote for how you've approached your career as well. Yeah. <laughs> and your life. Yeah.
1: yeah, there's a common trend.
0: Well, Estelle, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. And yeah, everyone, I will put those resources in the episode notes.
1: All hey, right, thank you. It's been a lovely, lovely conversation.
0: And that's it for today. Today's episode was recorded and edited by me, your host, Philemon Newton. With original music composition by Stephen Sharton, photography by Philip LaMissuria. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.